0: okay so I'm going to in this talk review some of the ideas and concepts that we've been talking about and uh, hopefully introduce a few more and uh, that's sort of the way I uh, We'll be introducing um, each set of ideas. We'll go over what we've talked about before and then introduce and build, and hopefully that way uh, it'll be easier to digest some of this. Uh, these insights. So, to... Go back to what JMO was saying uh, this morning, which was uh, very well put and uh, cannot really be overemphasized that um, humans, we are social animals, pack animals. Uh, we don't have the uh, ability to outrun a lot of our predators. We don't have shells. We don't have great abilities to climb trees. Uh, We don't dig holes and uh, scurry into the ground with any particular alacrity. But one thing we do do exceptionally uh, well is connect. And the reason we do that so well is that we connect on so many different levels. Though as we move into adult life, we tend to rely, uh, I would argue, over rely upon the connection afforded to us by language and ideas to the point that we can have entire uh, friendships largely based on texting and Facebooking and non synchronous uh, just words. Going over uh, Ethernet, but we're not um, relying on the full range of uh, connectivity that's afforded to us. In the uh, first three or four years of our life, our primary form of connecting. and and establishing security. In fact, our overall drive is to bond with an attachment figure. An attachment figure for an infant is somebody who will care for us, who will provide a sense of uh, security, a sense of being taken care of, a sense of um, being understood. And this bond that's formed is of enormous importance, it provides, when all goes well, a secure base that allows us then to go on and um, explore the world with confidence and to make connections with others with a sense that somebody is there to have our back. So the secure base is... um, that sense that there's a place, a person to return to, a home, uh, a grounding relationship, and it's provided by um, another person. The very first capabilities that are amongst the earliest uh, skills developed in childhood and infancy and babies is actually the ability to recognize a face. It's deeply wired into, and to literally, I mean, recognize the face, not just any face, but to recognize the face of the caretaker. Um, Conrad Lorenz was actually, in many ways, uh, the unknown hero of now developmental theory. He was the guy who discovered the primal bonding Stage in mammals where a mammal at a certain point will mark a caretaker or uh, and essentially a uh, figure that it will follow around and seek to connect with. And it was from reading Lorenz that Bowlby and uh, Winnicott and all the greats in attachment. Uh, essentially got their spark of um, insight. So this secure base that we need to um, not just feel confident that our needs will be met in adult life, but also confident in relationships that will choose partners that will not withhold love, that will choose people that will be um, available who will... Uh, Create secure bonds with us. There, um, this connection is afforded by a couple of different techniques. A child looks for one proximity and attunement, which is simply being seen and being in the proximity of the caretaker that provides safety. And uh, attunement is literally locking eyes or. Or being the 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 sense of being seen in the eyes of the other, which makes us feel when we're completely vulnerable, and when we're at a stage of life where disconnection feels like annihilation and death, to be seen, to be attuned to, to be uh, held in the gaze of the other, is that sense of um, is the way that safety is conveyed to the infant. It's not some, it can be, as Winnicott said, the holding, but it's also just the locking of, of a glance. And the second thing we need is empathy, mirroring, which is essentially <clears throat> someone to, when we're scared or frightened or angry or frustrated or lonely, a caretaker, a mother, a father, someone mirrors that emotion back to us before the mother might smile and reassure the infant. There's a mirroring which the child feels a sense of, I'm not alone, my emotions are being understood. Emotions are the language that we use to connect. So if when a, a caretaker mirrors back, our signals, our frowns, our tears, our sadness, our joy, our elation, our surprise. When the mother or father or caretaker or the other mirrors that back, we have established a a kind of communication that uh, can help us get our needs met. So we're not only secure, but now we're getting our needs met. The infant can convey its hunger, its fear, its overwhelm, its approval. And so you can see that we're building on communication. And then, uh, finally, as language begins to develop, um, the child looks for sympathy, which is essentially the parent naming the emotional state. And this is important. Eventually, the, the child like is three years old. It's running in the playground. It stumbles across a large dog. It's cries out, it's terrified, it runs, and the mother or the father goes, oh, you're scared. You're okay, you're with me, the doggy won't hurt you. But in that moment, besides the mirroring that might happen and the proximity, there's also the sympathetic labeling of the emotion, which now the child can um, incorporate that emotion into its... Uh, self, It's experienced through life. So the basic connective emotions that we rely on first are just five. I'm working on Ekman's. There's now uh, in um, uh, various psychological studies across cultures, some people say there's four universal, five universal, seven universal emotions. I'm just going to use the... Five, you know, um, fear, anger, disgust, joy, and sadness. So those emotions, they're largely somatic in the sense that they're mostly felt in the body or conveyed non-verbally. There's very little verbal uh, tone to these basic emotions. And they're largely transcultural in the sense that in Ekman's studies in showing the... If you show somebody uh, in a very distant culture from ours the uh, expression of somebody in fear, anger, or joy, in that culture they can name the emotions just by looking at the facial expression and the body language. So there's a transcultural element, and that's because there's very little thought, uh, very little language involved in it. So fear is the basic emotion we feel when an attachment figure has been threatened or we've been threatened, our own security. Anger is the urge to punish those we believe are have threatened us or our attachment figures. Disgust is the urge to expel a sensory experience. Joy is a, a broaden and build emotion, according to the wonderful Barbara Fredrickson that switches off our fight, flight, or freeze and allows us to connect without being vulnerable. So joy and happiness have extremely important survival uh, applications. Without them, we'll never be able to relax into new relationships. And sadness is the wounded withdrawal after an attachment figure has been removed or is unavailable. So these are the basic emotions that we use at first to communicate. And uh, if one of these emotions is poorly tolerated, uh, this is the formation of the exiles, which we'll talk about. Uh, It's really important that these basic emotions be um, understandable and seen by a caretaker, because without these five basic flavors of human life, this basic five-color palette, Uh, we will struggle not only to uh, survive uh, socially, but a lot of these are core survival needs as well, without anger. If we can't feel anger, if we've been conditioned by our parents or our culture away from feeling anger, it'll be very difficult for us to establish boundaries. And we'll find ourselves in workplaces and relationships walked all over. If we can't can't feel grief or sadness, we won't be able to emotionally process loss. And we won't uh, in any way be able to move on after a death or a loss in a way that acknowledges the experience and incorporates it. Um... So there's higher emotions as well. Of course, there's pride, which is the sense that we've done something that uh, is to the benefit of a tribe that we're connected to. There's shame and guilt, which means we've done an action that we wouldn't want the tribe that we feel closest to to know about. There's bitterness, which is a social emotion deriving from anger at a group of people. uh, Melancholy the sadness or mourning of a, a, a shift in social rituals or connections overall. So these are higher socializing emotions. They have more thought and more uh, mental cognition tone to them, so they're not transcultural. They tend to shift from one culture to another. Um, The emotions that various family systems and social cultures uh, will um, very often uh, suppress or repress or abandon or not acknowledge can have, of course, as JMO was saying, very important uh, gender and identity implications, by which I mean, It's not a surprise to any of you that we live in a misogynist culture and young women are conditioned away from emotions and impulses that men are not shamed for and are rewarded for. Men in our culture are very often afforded the right to act unilaterally and to be aggressive and to be demanding that their needs be met, whereas women can be punished for these very natural impulses and be conditioned towards compliance to a degree that men aren't. So there are, of course, uh, also uh, if you're a member of a LGBTQ community, a person of color, also certain emotions and impulses that are um, white people are allowed to express you will be punished for as well. So what is repressed or exiled largely depends on a lot of factors. Um, they depend on family systems and uh, cultural preferences, and they're, pl- they're very complex. So what I might find unbearable to be, fi- to be felt at times, you might find easy to hold, whereas other emotions that I can hold you might find uh, impossible to experience. Um, so as JMO and I have been saying, um, to keep these repressed emotions that were poorly tolerated by people early in our life that we felt abandoned when we expressed our sadness or our anger or our loneliness or our confusion or our weakness or our strength or whatever we were punished for expressing... Um, we develop a set of um, maladaptive coping strategies. Some maladaptive coping strategies, oddly enough, are still tolerated by others, whereas many maladaptive coping strategies aren't, of course, tolerated by others. The maladaptive or the, the sort of strategies we use to keep painful feelings, painful emotional memories of abandonment, wounding, and virtually all of our exiles involve, in my experience, interpersonal life. I mean, all of our emotions as we are social beings involve feelings of being wounded, abandoned, hurt, uh, uh, shut out by other people. So the managers are... Actions or behaviors that are to a degree acceptable. Other people will like them for, like us for these behaviors. Um, They're very often uh, chasing what the Buddha called the four worldly winds of looking for fame, gain, uh, approval, and uh, pleasure. Um, The last one sometimes turns into a Seeking constant pleasure can turn into a firefighter. I'm going to read you some of mine. I like to be revealing. So uh, I I believe in when we name these to not be uh, to use language that's hurtful because as JMO is saying, all of these parts of the mind are there to protect us. They're trying in their own way to secure our, to secure ourselves in a world that is often unloving and uh, remote and uncaring um, so there's the stoic worker which I have which is a stiff upper lip the guy who after uh, both parents my parents died not too far from each other and I uh, for a while before feeling the grief just kept going to my responsibilities and you know just so I wouldn't feel a lot of the emotions that needed to be processed, that manager kept those at bay by just showing up, teaching, doing my one-on-one work. There's the soapbox order, in my case, in the shower, the little inner speeches I give about the way the world should be. <laughs> and that's a, of course, um, compensation for feelings of lack of of uh, power at times, hopelessness, helplessness, uh, and just uh, feelings of uh, unfairness. And those are much more painful feelings, so it's easier to just make inner speeches about how crappy the world is or how uh, terrible um, Republicans are. (laughs) Uh, There's the worrier, the alarmist who uh, catastrophizes and predicts worst-case scenarios. And this uh, is um, actually somebody that's in my family. I grew up in uh, um, a sort of neurotic Jewish family. It was a very rewarded uh, Mm -hmm. behavior. My mother would almost approve when we had... We would compete with each other to come up with the most dire predictions. (laughs) Uh, and my my mom at one point had something really successful happen to her, and she had her picture in the paper, and I remember coming home and saying, uh, look how great that is, your pictures in the paper, and she explained to me that that's the way God sets you up. <laughs> <laughs> Humorously enough, she didn't She didn't actually believe in God except when something bad was going to happen, which is as Jewish as you can get. Um, she had an inner critic, and I have an inner critic, which we talked about, the prosecutor. And then, of course, there's the appeaser, which in my family was very necessary. I grew up with a very... Uh, my dad, when he would drink, could suddenly become violent and rageful. And then... He would apologize for throwing plates at my head when he was drunk. And I knew instinctively that I had to immediately accept and say, that's okay. That it was not allowed to say, well, that was terrifying what you did. Maybe you should look into therapy. I mean, obviously, a bit odd for an 11 year old to say that or a six year old, <laughs> but. but Uh, I was trained to be immediately forgiving, and and, uh, when somebody uh, throughout much of my life before I did a lot of work on this would apologize for um, being harsh or cruel or not showing up, my gut default instinct was to say, that's okay, that's okay, don't worry about it, because my family system set me up for this behavior, which is you don't, you don't, you don't in any way tempt that dragon to once again start breathing fire. A good, uh, a wonderful person I worked with for a while who worked in the service industry called his, uh, his, co- uh, his uh, manager, Jazz Hands. He was, uh, was a waiter and he'd just, you know, always, you know, make the customer feel... Uh, Loved. Um, But then we have firefighters, firefighters. And of course, if you do any of the managers in a sort of uh, a reasonable amount, they probably won't come cause you too much suffering. But when we wind up with coalitions or balanced um, pairs. Uh, what can happen is we can be so often in these protective parts that we never feel any of our pains and our woundings that need to be felt and need to be held and need to be healed. So, um, firefighters are what arise when our managers fail. And, uh, as Jamie was saying, the, the first and most obvious is the addict, which... Um, self-numbs as a way to make sure we don't feel pain. So when our strategies of being really likable and appeasing everybody don't work and we still don't get invited to the party or the event or we find out that people got together without us and we start to feel the uh, echoes of loneliness or... um, isolation, or not being loved that was so traumatic in childhood start to arise, then we might seek an addiction, which uh, addictions all come in essentially two flavors, thrills and chills. Thrills spike your dopamine, make you feel really uh, up, and they uh, they create this, like... Uh, this sense of power, this sense of being really smart and really lovable, and very often people from families where there wasn't enough rewards or enough acknowledgement of successes or enough being seen in a positive light, a lot of people can see cocaine or speed to give them that missing reward that they've never felt. Whereas chills essentially tamp down and suppress and switch off especially numb the body. There's a, a wonderful study in a, a book called Addiction as Attachment Disorder that showed how uh, people who struggle with specific emotions are then led almost inevitably to certain substances. Uh, there's a prevalence uh, in the community of people who uh, were addicted to heroin to have struggled feeling anger. And uh, very often people who turn towards alcoholism, as I did, uh, feel um, very often early experiences of extreme social phobia or anxiety. So chills switch off. Other firefighters are anxiety. Anxiety is what the conscious mind does when an emotion that's blocked is arising and it's the mind jumping around looking for anything to think about, focus, or do to make the emotion go away. Uh, Avoidance and procrastination is hiding from a conflict or from an activity that we emotionally believe will create really painful emotions. Um... Rage, venting, and anger as a way to protect ourselves from feeling sad and abandoned and uh, not loved. Self-pity and sulking, uh, engaging in stories which help us avoid the painful feelings beneath the stories. The managers and firefighters would almost always prefer us to be disembodied, to not feel the emotion in the body, because that's where, as children, our greatest pain was experienced. When we felt disconnected, those early experiences of not being seen, held, or loved, that experience is most primarily ex- uh, known uh, in the body. The body, in those experiences, feels completely um, out of control, filled with roiling impulses and uh, emotional states that haven't been explained or haven't been soothed and regulated and so uh, these emotions which are primarily uh, in adult life still somatic um, will do anything to switch into our thoughts. So this is why we can find even really catastrophizing fear driven <laughs> extremely negative thoughts preferable to even feeling just an inkling of fear in the body. When fear starts to appear, that tightness in the belly, that strangulation in the throat, that, that tightness in the face, we will do anything to seek what Winnicott called that false you know, self, that false shelter, that false refuge, which is thought, story, prediction, you know, fantasy. Anything to keep us up here above the neck, not in the body. So both managers and firefighters interrupt the process of connecting with other people. And um, especially firefighters uh, get in the way of the strongest source of emotion regulation and emotion... Uh, healing that we can find is, one, of course, in building a safe container in our practice, but two, is in expressing non-verbally in the met exchange of glances, the, the tears, the, the slumped shoulders, the shaking body, the, the non-verbal expression of emotions seen by another person can repair those early times when we as infants seeked to connect via our emotions and couldn't find care and couldn't find connection. So the greatest healing comes from when we um, find the, uh, uh, the healing experience, the reconstructing experience, Uh, So unfortunately, the great irony of firefighters is that they, more than any other uh, protection part, push other people away. Our managers bring us closer to people, but only in a way so that we can show them the emotions that we know that they will approve of. So when we look diligent and uh, uh, confident and on top of our game and smiling and enthusiastic we're in our manager mode and we're happy to be around people but when the cracks start to show through and the exiled feelings and repressed sadnesses start to arise then we will push other people away and seek isolating firefighters. A great example is uh, the uh, binging on food which um, can give the feeling that there's somebody there taking care of us. So my friend who was jazz hands during the day, when he came home exhausted from being in that constant state of loving to see people and treating every patron as if they were the most important person in the world and all that, that's not a manager you can sustain for more than you know, seven or eight hours. Then he'd come home and he'd turn into what he called the slug. I don't. I didn't like that name. I told him to give it that part another name. But essentially, the slug was somebody who immediately grabbed ice cream and sat in front of the television show. And he said, almost purposely, watched the most embarrassing, mindless, brainless show he could watch as a way to feel. Indulged and taken care of the way he was indulging and taking care of other people. Beneath that was a wounded part which we got to, which was the feeling of massive shunning due to his sexuality and due to early life experiences that were actually quite tragic and never in any way healed by his family. So, um, exiles, again, are the parts of the mind that hold the rejected emotions and memories of the traumatic. Um, So, Arden uh, passed this on. It's in a book that uh, we read. Bessel van der Kolk's uh, The Body Keeps the Score. It's one of the great books that's come out in the last ten years about... uh, the different modalities that treat trauma. And uh Vanderkoek writes, in trauma the system breaks down, our parts become polarized and go to war with one another. Self-loathing coexists and fights with grandiosity. Loving care fights with hatred. Numbing and passivity with rage and aggression. These are the parts that bear the burden of trauma, What he's alluding to is that very often when there's early traumas or early extreme abandonments, one or two parts jump up and claim complete responsibility and control and take on the burden of making sure we never feel that wounded again. So if we lose a caretaker, if we feel suddenly expelled from a relationship or a family if we feel um, confused by uh, the relationships and we can't make any sense of them if we grow up in sexual or physical abuse uh, the list goes on very often one manager will jump up with one firefighter and they form like an angry team the jazz hand and the uh, slug that together make sure that loneliness and uh, and uh, uh, ostracization are never experienced again or never felt again. Um, so I'd like to conclude now. With um, I'm going to leave some time for hopefully for some questions, but I'd like to do a little exercise working with these ideas. So find a comfortable seated position. And closing the eyes... And I'd like you to bring to mind some activity, impulse, behavior, addiction of yours that you don't particularly uh, feel comfortable with, but that comes up. It could be rage, it could be binging on food, it could be secretly numbing out on uh, binge Netflixing or uh, stalking old relationships on Facebook. Any behavior that you wouldn't particularly want people in your life to know about. And I don't want you to judge this behavior I don't want you to judge this this firefighter or this part. I want us to remember that this part is there to keep us from feeling something deeper and something painful, and that it arises because our normal, daily, mundane routines have not kept the underlying pain away, which has been activated. So I'd like you to give either it a name or a visual. For example, the sloth or the slug could literally be that, or it could be uh, the... Addict could have a visual. In Buddhism, the addict is depicted with a hungry ghost, with the long neck and the little mouth and the big belly. Or you could just give it a name. Whatever this part is, see if the name cannot be harsh or judgmental, as we said. And now, what I'd like you to do is to ask permission. And this practice takes a while, so don't be frustrated at first, it doesn't uh, yield immediate results. But ask this part permission to feel. What it doesn't want you to feel. What does my rage, my isolation, my self numbing, my shopping, my binge shopping, my binge eating, my, my, Drugs or alcohol or my compulsion to seek sex with people I know won't bring me happiness. What do what, what feeling does this part not want me to feel? If I'm binging is there a feeling of not being cared for? that I don't want to feel. If I'm hooking up with people that are not giving me love, is there a feeling of loneliness? A sense of needing to connect deeply with another person, to be seen, to be held, that's not being met. And so I seek that in any way I can. Am I... What am I concealing from myself? What's beneath there? And just see if you can feel anything. This is very similar to what we call rain practice, where we're going in and we're allowing and we're creating a safe container to feel. And the beauty is when we feel, even though it's hard. We don't then, when we show these parts that we can hold what they're terrified of us feeling, then these parts, these parts don't come up as often or as strong. Once they see that we can be with the dreaded, be with the terrified, be with the feelings of aloneness... then those parts begin to see that we're no longer children and even assure thanking the firefighter and assuring it that you'll work with it to keep yourself safe and assuring the Exiled feeling, whatever is in the body that needs to be known, that needs to be felt, just assuring it that you will do everything as an adult now to protect and nurture.